I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. I know from my work as a financial planner that people are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. I'd like to change that. I'm going to be speaking with guests from all walks of life and asking them to share their personal story and the influence that money has had along the way. I'll also be delving into those tricky money and life questions that I've seen my clients wrestle with over the years. My hope is the shared experience of our guests will help you think differently about money and make better money decisions. Hello and welcome to Money Expresso. It's our fifth edition already. Now, since we last met, the Sunday Times Rich List for 2021 has been published. Now, I didn't actually buy it, but I saw somebody on the train reading it. And I was strangely drawn to want to have a look at it. Until I asked myself the question, why? What was I going to get out of reading a list of 250 incredibly rich individuals? And I think there were two things going on for me. There was part of me that was inspired and intrigued by individuals who've created so much wealth, worked incredibly hard, set up amazing businesses and ventures. So I guess it was kind of stoking my ambition and admiration and inspiration and giving me an opportunity to daydream. But then there was also this other bit of my brain, I think, that was 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 maybe exhibiting some form of envy, kind of judging how they'd created their wealth, how they spent their wealth, what their spending habits were, why any one individual or one family could possibly need so much money. And of course, that classic chestnut question, yes, but are they happy? And it reminded me of today's podcast, actually, with, with Carl Richards, which we recorded a couple of weeks ago. Carl's a really deep thinker, and we spend quite a bit of time delving into behavioral finance. So how we are as human beings and the way we behave around money and the value judgments we take. We also asked the question about why do so many people in society these days seem to equate net worth with self-worth somehow? And I guess that's what got me thinking again about the Sunday Times Rich List. What judgments are we making about people because of the size of their wealth? Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let's get going. So my guest today is Carl Richards. I first heard Carl speak at an investment conference in London back in 2013. His story fascinated me. Not only was Carl a certified financial planner, a keynote speaker, and an author of a couple of books, but he's also the creator of the Sketch Guy column, which has appeared weekly in the New York Times since 2010. What Carl does is take complex financial matters and distills them down into simple, easy to understand sketches to help explain both to clients and financial planners in the world at large how to think about money. In 2015, Carl published his second book, The One Page Financial Plan, which I devoured in my quest to simplify and distill what we do for our clients into something more meaningful, easy to understand and follow. Now, without doubt, Carl is one of the preeminent thought leaders in global financial planning. His Behaviour Gap weekly newsletter, in which he dispenses thought-provoking concepts, stories and sketch, has a circulation of around 30,000, and it remains, eight years later, one of the few mailers that I look forward to receiving weekly. 
He certainly had a very big influence on me and the way I think around money, clients and life. I was lucky enough to meet Carl for a cup of coffee uh, back in about March 2020, just before lockdown. Carl and his family were actually living in London and exploring the UK in what actually turned out to be a bit of a damp squib of a year 2020 with all the lockdown restrictions. Nonetheless, it enabled myself and Barry at Paradigm Norton to spend time with Carl exploring the idea for this podcast, Money Expresso. So we have a lot to be grateful to Carl for. Today, we're talking to Carl from his home in Utah. Carl, great to have you on the podcast today. Ruth, thank you. It's uh, super, I'm super excited to chat with you. It's really good to have you here. Um, Carl, could we just start off just to uh, enable our, our listeners to get a feel for you with a, with a kind of nutshell journey to you becoming the sketch guy in the New York Times, a, a keynote international speaker, and uh, a thought leader in financial planning. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess the short version of it, probably the easiest place to start is um, where it all started, which was me accidentally applying for what I thought was a security guard job. Um, the the ad in the paper I was at, I was at university and I was at I was landscaping um, and my wife found an ad in the paper we thought it we thought it had something to do with security like you know mall cop or bouncer or something um, it, we didn't know I didn't know at the time she probably did but I didn't know at the time that there was a difference between security and securities and what the ad said <laughs> was securities so I went to apply for a job I thought. I was going to apply to be a, a you know, a, a security guard. Um, it turned out it was at the biggest, it was Fidelity Investments, actually, one of the <laughs> you know, biggest investment firms in the world. Um, I somehow made it through that interview process, which tells you about the applicant pool that day, um, <laughs> and, and got hired um, for a part-time job at Fidelity Investments. And I, I remember, um, so it was quite by accident, <laughs> but I remember after I got over the fact that I wasn't a security guard, I was like, what, what is this job? And I remember thinking it was a math job in like the training thing. I was like, this is okay. I got it. We there's spreadsheets and there's calculators. I didn't know much about that stuff, but I could figure it out that it was a math job. And, and then my first interaction with clients and customers happened. And I, and I, I realized, whoa, this isn't a math job at all. Like there, it was, it was during a very like crazy time in the, in the investment world in 1995 when Netscape went public. So there was like all this activity and it was the first time I got on the phone and actually talked to clients, customers, and they were mad or excited. And I was like, wow, this doesn't feel like math. Mm -hmm. So I got into the industry by accident, but it was that experience that has kept me intrigued ever since that, that it turns out that this stuff that we call money, sure, there's a spreadsheet component to it. But it's not, that's not what it's about, right? It's about, it's about feelings and emotion and fear and our, it keeps us up at night. And it's sometimes it's the things we wake up in the morning that we're excited about. All, most of those things are funded with pounds, right? Yeah. And we, we, so that's what's kept me in the, in the job. And the sketch guy thing, the New York Times column started really, again, uh, it's like a common theme. I was just playing, kind of playing in traffic, trying things. Mm -hmm. And it started because I was, I had clients 
really, I had this repeated experience, which I'm sure you've had, Ruth, that you have really smart, successful people as clients, and you're trying to explain to them a concept that you think is important for their to make an important decision about how they're going to use their money, their financial plan, if you will. And these are smart, successful people, and you're just getting blank stares. And I remember sitting across that conference room table just being like, and almost out of an act of desperation one day, I was like, no, like this. And I'd never drawn anything before in my life. And I drew like some squares and some circles and some arrows. And mm -hmm. they were like, oh, oh, I get it now. And, and so that feeling of like taking something that feels um, intangible and maybe a little complex mm -hmm. and making it a little simple and a little more tangible, like visual, um, I got addicted to that, right? So mm -hmm. I just started doing that over and over and over on the early days of the internet, this blog I started called Behavior Gap. And one day I got an email from the editor at the Your Money section of the New York Times. And I'm not really skipping many steps. Um, and Ron Lieber, and it just, again, a series of super amazing, you know, I'm a big fan of luck. I'm totally okay with mm -hmm. the idea that I have to work hard, but I'm also a big fan of luck. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those moments where I look back at my career and I'm like, that was like the reason it landed on his desk that day. I mean, I've seen his desk. Yeah. There's 50,000 other things on that desk yeah. competing for his attention. And so he just said, hey, would you do this for us? And, and I knew kind of, I always joke that I knew from my security guard background mm. to, to say yes and kind of figure it out later. And that started a 10 year run every week. Um, talking about money and trying to visualize it with the time. So that's, that's, and that, and then that, that work turned into the book and the book turned into speaking things. So it just sort of snowballed from there. So that's, that's how it happened. All that's, quite by accident. And I think what's really fascinating about that. And I'm hoping this is changing a little bit in, in the UK around money is that certainly going back 10 years or so ago, that there seemed to be a, um, some kind of nobility in actually making things complicated, you know, kind of power basing. So if I, the expert, know and you don't, you're going to have to keep coming back to my table to be fed. And, and what you've done, which is what I really applaud about your work, is really try to turn that tables and share your knowledge in a way that people will understand. And that, I think, would have been pretty groundbreaking back in kind of the, the, the noughties. Um, and and really amazing to amazing to see. And and how did you you said when you got on the phone to clients, what you identified was fear, excitement, concern, happiness. Why weren't other people picking up on that? Do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think that that let me just comment quickly about that that kind of like power dynamic thing that we. It's just really funny that we even do it. And it still happens a lot in the US. And I just wrapped up spending a year in London. So I got to see in you know, a couple of years in New Zealand and I've seen, it's, it's not unique, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there may be some pieces culturally about the UK that are a little more reserved or maybe we don't quite talk about money as much or maybe there's some truth to the idea that we don't express our feelings as much, but that doesn't mean we don't have them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so- there's this sense for some reason that showing how smart I am making things complicated is a sign of intellectual prowess. Mm. 
And I think there's two, two versions of it. One is just this natural tendency that the smarter, quote unquote, the more complex issues we deal with, the more we think other people care about that. That's one version. The other version is a bit more nefarious in, in, in its intent. And our industry, speaking broadly, the financial services industry is really guilty of this, which is the idea that we can use complexity as a selling tool. Yeah. And the model kind of is like, you know, for all of you listening, like you've been through this, like the model sort of is like, I'm going to dig a hole, throw the client into it and look down and say, I'm the only one with a rope. Yeah. Now, whether you're using complexity as a, as a sign of your intellectual gift or whether you're throwing clients in holes, neither one, like humans don't like to be treated that way, mm-hmm. right? Like neither one, like we don't like to be talked down to, you know, like you're, your audience and and the clients of a of a real financial planner are not dumb Mm -hmm. you don't hire a financial planner or a financial advisor because you're dumb you hire them because you're actually smart enough to realize the blind spots you may have right we hire people because they'll see things that we can't and so when you get spoken down to or people treat you like you don't know it's just a turnoff. And so that's why I think it's so funny that as an industry, we haven't gotten better at it. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. I think there's a growing, there's a, you know, and to your second point, like why aren't more people, I think there's a growing body of research called behavioral finance that is pointing at these things, but we're still treating them as if they're experiments and spreadsheets and data. Mm-hmm. And we're not understanding that like, you know, if you just take a second, like, and maybe your readers could do this, like, just take a second and pretend like you have a balance sheet in front of you. And if, if, if you're not aware of what a balance sheet is, don't worry, because you're not alone. Most people don't. Just pretend like you have a list of everything you owe and everything you own on a piece of paper. That's a, according to the industry, according to the way we think about money, that's just a statement of numbers, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's supposed to be a, a, a non-fiction story, a statement of fact, just look at that list for a minute and think about each individual line, right? And if you're, if you have the experience that most people have, there's a story there, mm-hmm. right? We, we bought this piece of property. Um, my grandmother bought this piece of property. We inherited it. We've been going there for 20 years. All the cousins gather, right? Like that's yeah. a, how about, how about the debt, you know, the credit card balance, I told you that was a bad idea. You hear yourself saying to your mm-hmm. spouse, right? So the, the, mm-hmm. that's not about numbers. That's about, that's not a nonfiction story, right? It's a, it's a, a bunch of fictional stories with deep feelings about yeah. them, fights, arguments. So, so we've got a long way to go before we understand that. But I think that's, we were all trained. If you were taught anything about money in your life, you were taught it was a math problem. Yeah. Right. If, if it was in the building at university, it was in the math building, right? It certainly wasn't in the psychology or the social mm-hmm. science building. And I think it belongs more in the, like, it's interesting because it's both. Yeah. It's both. And, and we've just played one last thing on that. We, that I think the reason we spend more time on the spreadsheet number side is because we don't, it, it's, it, it feels quite, it's, it's literally quantifiable, mm-hmm. 
right? We, we have a little, we, I like to refer to it as physics MB. Like we, we, we want there to be laws and rules around this. And anytime something is, you know, a little soft around the edges and we can't quite harness it, we, it, we get a little uncomfortable. It makes, us, it makes it so much easier to go, oh no, that's a math problem. Yeah. Well, if that's a math problem, how come you feel that way? Right. So that's that's a long-winded answer to that question. It's a really good point. And I I when I think back to talking to clients and and you're thinking about you know people's short, medium, and longer term goals, and you're trying to make the best use of their assets. And again, from a spreadsheet perspective, that may be that you have a very significant proportion of your assets in an investment portfolio of some description. But I've always been a real fan of you know, holding cash, because actually it makes people feel more comfortable. It may not be the optimum use of cash, but it's the thing that's going to help us out of a hole when the going gets tough or it helps you sleep at night. And I've had numerous discussions over the years with colleagues who are probably more technically minded than me and, and, and debated that particular issue. Um, and I really like the fact that this is becoming much more of the in, in the lexicon of what we as financial planners are, are talking to clients about. But, um, yeah, let me, let me give you a super quick example of that. I've literally been to mortgage payoff parties. Yeah. Right? Like I've been to a, somebody's house where they celebrate the fact that that, sorry, I get emotional about it. Just thinking about one of them. Um, they celebrate the fact that they're, they're debt free. Yeah. I have never been to a rational construction of a portfolio party. <laughs> exactly. You know? and, yeah. and so, yeah, the spreadsheet would say, low cost of capital in the form of your mortgage, your mortgage rate is mm -hmm. low. Let's say it's 4%. It's low. Yeah. You shouldn't pay that off. Yeah. And yet I've been to those parties. Um, and, and one, I'll give you even a more dramatic example in my mind. I remember a while ago, somebody made a comment on online. It was somebody that another, a, a journalist that's well thought of. She said that um, being a stay and look, this is, I'm totally okay with the idea that this may be controversial. Being a stay-at-home mom is never, this is her statement, being a stay-at-home mom is never a good idea. And, and I think she meant financially, but I think she just said never a good idea. And it started a conversation with me. I said, well, that's interesting. You should ask my wife. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, no, financially, it's never a good idea. And I said, well, there's a line item mm -hmm. on our balance sheet that says, and, and my wife made, like, we jointly made the decision, but obviously primarily it was her decision there's a, there's a line item on the balance sheet that says being at home with our four kids. And there's a value there. Yeah. Right. Like, and no one else, this is the interesting piece. Like no one else gets to decide what that number is. Yeah. Right. And so that we, we don't value to our lives, the things that we value the most, you mm. can't put a number on them. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's totally reasonable for us to realize that there's the spreadsheet answer. And yeah. then there's sort of the, the I, like sometimes I think of it as the, the heart answer, mm -hmm. the, like the way we feel about it. And both need to be thought about, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping, I'm like you, I'm hoping that we're moving more in that direction and as a society, generally speaking, and hopefully the work that real financial planners do. Carl, I'm talking to you today in your home in Utah, and uh, you've just shown me you've got lots and lots of snow out the window, which is yeah. amazing. Um, but I'd like to catapult you back, and I'm not sure whether that was Utah, but I want to go back to when you were a little boy growing up. And 
I'm, I'm keen to understand what your first memories of money were mm. and, and just your initial opening comments where you were explaining your, your, your path, your career path about confusing security and securities suggests to me that there may not have been a significant mm. financial element to that, but tell us what that was like, please. That's really funny, Ruth. I was just thinking about this. I've asked that question probably a thousand times of people. And I don't think anyone has ever asked me. Um, that's fascinating. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is there was no financial education. Mm -hmm. uh, not unlike most of the people I know then and now. Um, none the first time I had any financial education was when I decided when my wife graduated with a finance degree from the university I was attending and I decided to get a finance degree. Um, but that was mainly corporate finance. So personal finance, never. So my, but my, for, as you asked me that question, my first thought was the struggles I watched my parents go through when they got divorced. And this thing, I lived with my mom who was a, you know, had, had done kind of a traditional thing and, you know, postponed her education to be a mom. And, and so then found herself in a tough spot, which yeah. pointing to that, the earlier commenters, you know, staying home, being a stay at home mom is never a good idea. I think that's what she was pointing at is sure. like, it can be, yeah, it can go South. And so watching and somehow my dad always seemed to have money and I'm not, I don't know, I'm not faulting anybody, but I just watching that power dynamic, mm -hmm. like dad shows up in the nice car and we go to Disneyland. Mom says, no, you can't go skiing because we don't have enough money, right? Like it, yeah. that power dynamic was fascinating to me. So that's my earliest memory, my memory of their, I didn't struggle. I, I didn't want for much, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know that, mm -hmm. right? Like I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I always felt like um, there was not enough. I also remember discovering once later, I remember we had to move once for some reason. I wasn't sure why. And I discovered later that, um, that there was a, a mortgage with a term on it. So it was like a five-year or a seven-year arm mortgage. And that no one, either no one walked my mom through the fact that you could refinance mm -hmm. or she couldn't afford to refinance. And so she had to sell the home and we, she's rented ever since. So it's been 35 mm -hmm. years. So there's a sense of um, scarcity that I've worked through over the years, mm -hmm. still am. And there's a sense of like interesting power dynamics. Mm -hmm. There's also a sense of it never being spoken of. Yeah. Like, like we do, like, and what's funny about that is everybody else in the house knows, right? Like you're not protecting anybody mm -hmm. by not involving these brilliant 14, 15, 12, 16 year old kids that you think aren't ready to handle this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was, there's a sense of anxiety and I didn't know what it was about. That's, that's probably my earliest memories of money. Yeah, sounds sounds like it was tough at times in 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 that in that respect. And and For sure. how do I mean what you've explained there resonates with me. It sounds like our parents got divorced at a sim when we were similar 
ages and um and that whole thing about maintenance from dad to mom and was it being paid and wasn't it being paid and all of those things it, it, it is really interesting about what that leaves us with as we as we grow up and you kind of mentioned kind of scarcity I mean, do you how do you deal with your money experiences at an early age and how do they play out in life with your with your family these days yeah it's such a good question and what's interesting is uh, sometimes there's a tendency I, i'm just thinking of like your listeners there's a tendency to hear these stories and be like oh isn't that but i i'm not unique like every mm. single person i've ever spoken to because no one taught your parents how to talk about money so it's not like I do not fault my mom or dad or your mm. mom or dad, mm. right? Like no one taught them how to do it. And we're just kind of repeating those mistakes. I mean, I remember saying to my son when he was like 12, the neighbors got a new water ski boat and we drove past the neighbor's house. And my son said, oh, geez, you know, this, it wasn't the Smiths, but the Smiths must be rich. And I remember saying, his name's Sam. I remember saying, Sam, that's none of your business. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't I say, oh, that's interesting, Sam. Why do you think that? Mm -hmm. Or hey, why wouldn't I use that? So we're sort of training mm -hmm. our kids that there are unspeakable topics and typically they're money, yeah. you know, sex, yeah. religion, politics, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and I don't know if religion, politics, but money and sex are the two things. Like, oh, if I'm not allowed to ask about that, I certainly shouldn't ask about that. Yeah, yeah. That's the exact opposite of the message we want to send. Like, talk to me, tell me. Yeah. So I'm trying to catch that stuff more often. And then the sense of scarcity, luckily my wife comes from the opposite spectrum. And, and I think she would, I don't know if it's true, but maybe a little too abundant, right? And so I'm way too scarce. And so we, I have a, somebody that will remind me every once in a while, like, hey, those stories about ending up under the bridge, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's funny. I was talking to um, some of your listeners may know the name Seth Godin. Mm -hmm. Seth said, you know, whatever, has written a bunch of books and is an internationally known speaker. And I was talking to him about this one day. And he said that early on, the way he accepted, that he, the way he made the decision to accept speaking engagements was if somebody offered, <laughs> because he felt like if somebody offered and he said, no, there would never be another one again. And he might as well climb under a rock and die. Like, so yeah. here's somebody who's as successful as I think you can become in mm. that field who has struggled with the same thing. Right. And it turns out those are all stories. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're all, so I try to remind myself, I try to remind myself the process I go through is like, Oh, 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 oh you're out here in like spinning land i think of it as like a like a hurricane mm -hmm. the closer to the center you are the less you move right and so when i feel like things are spinning i feel like oh i must be way out in the edge or you could think of it as a tree i must be way out on a limb in a mm -hmm. windstorm and then i try to remind myself like okay what's the what's what's the trunk what's the fact what's the center oh it's the fact pattern somebody asked you to speak you said no that's the fact that's all you know you don't know anything else yeah. so I try to remind myself, remind myself what are the facts and what are the stories yeah and um it turns out that's really complicated work and yeah fascinating work 
It is, I think, the, the, the amount of assumptions that we all make up. And once you start to notice, it's about everything. You know, it, it, you know, and we, we all, we, you know, I make assumptions about how this podcast is going to be, what people are going to think. You know, it's ridiculous. It's like, what are the facts? I'm talking to Carl. We're having a conversation. That's it. Um, I've heard you speak about uh, the importance of a statement of financial purpose. Hmm. Could you just tell me? And our listeners, a little bit about what you mean by a statement of financial purpose and maybe how that's helped you make some of the decisions that you've made in your life. Yeah, yeah. So this, the idea of the statement of, of financial purpose is a, it's an idea that I'm forcibly inserting into the industry. Like I, I'm hoping that there will be a time a couple of years from now where everybody has, if you work with a financial advisor, you have a statement of financial purpose. And I'm hoping that five years from now, no one will remember a time when it was different. That's how strongly I feel about it. Because I think we tend to start any conversation around financial advice. And this this is, I know it's true in the UK because I've spent a lot of time having these conversations. We tend to start at the level of, of products and tactics. It's a little bit like, we, we it's a little bit like debating whether you want to take a plane, a train, or an automobile on a trip. Like that's that's where we tend to start. Like, mm-hmm. is the plane going to be better? Is the automobile going to be better? Which one's better? Which one's the better mode of transportation? Let's compare them. Endless, endless chatter on the financial pornography network and and the news and the and the industry about that. And all, all I'm saying is, could before we have that debate, that debate could be valuable. In fact, it is valuable. But what if we decided where we were going first, right? Like before we started deciding on the before. And so when we get to deciding where we're going, sometimes we call those goals. Like we put this word on them and, and, and the problem with, and again, goals, defining goals, really, really good. It's hard work. The reason it's hard work is because we don't know. And so I, I, I like the, the problem with goals is, we, as humans, we've inserted a false sense of precision about goals. Mm-hmm. And, and we think, and I know, I would imagine if your listeners feel the same way, most humans tend to, as soon as I said the word goals, I would imagine there was a feeling of weight yeah. on your shoulders, like a little pressure, maybe even a tightness in the chest, right? Yeah, Just yeah. like oh, goals. Ah. And the reason that feeling is, is we've, 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 we've pretended all around the world that, and there's even like you know, like books and methodologies written about this, like they should be precise, they should have a time, we should stick to your goals. Like, but the problem is as humans, we don't know what we want. Mm-hmm. Like we, we learn from the earliest age how to desire by watching what other people desire. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know, no. And so now you've compounded that with Instagram and all of that, like now you, you sort of, so, I like to relieve that pressure by saying goals are just guesses. Mm-hmm. It's just a guess, like put a stake in the ground. We're going to head that direction. So goals, something sits underneath that. And the underneath part to me is kind of why, right? And, and, and it, it, it tends to be more durable than goals because goals are guesses. And when you make a goal and you start heading that direction, the first step you take, new information becomes available. Mm-hmm. And that new information may necessitate you changing your goal. And you shouldn't feel bad about that. 
Like yeah. I learned something. It turns out I don't like going to the movies as much. So the idea of me going to a movie every week was a silly goal. It's a bad example, but, mm. but underneath that, there's a more durable idea of like, why is, what is this all for? So like my statement of financial purpose, which hasn't changed in 15 years, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I get asked about it all the time is time with my family. I'm, I'm literally looking at the document that it's written on like time, time with my family, mainly outside and serving in my community. Now, I have that at the top of my one page financial plan. Everything nests underneath it. My goals are driven by that. My, the next 90 days sort of action steps are driven by that. And so the reason that's become really valuable to me is, I mean, I get asked every week, probably multiple times a week, if I wanna be involved in this next project, if I wanna invest in this thing, if I wanna come on the board of this thing, this startup, that fancy thing. And I used to go down these rabbit holes every time those things happened. Mm-hmm. And that's when I wrote this on the wall, time with my family mainly outside and I stuck it up above the computer. So these things would come up and I'd go, wait, wait, wait. It became a touchstone. I could grab it and go, oh, it doesn't fit mm-hmm. in this. Or, oh geez, this would really help me have more time with my family. That's yeah. a good idea. And so it serves as a, both a touchstone when I'm thinking about doing something crazy mm-hmm. and a reminder, and this is really critical, a reminder of what I said was important when I was thinking clearly. Yeah. Right? That's to me a statement of financial purpose. That's really powerful. I know um, within Paradigm Norton, we, we talk about our values as a business and you know values in a business can often feel a little bit wishy-washy or like oh well one of those things you're supposed to have but I think when you really commit to them in the same way as you're talking about your um your financial statement of purpose it it has the same effect in as much as if you make those decisions if people matter really is a decision that a value that's important if you actually lay that across the actions that you're taking as a business you remain much more true, I think, to what it is that you purport to be important. So I, I, I like that, yeah. And, and I think it's a bit of a, a follow-on from that, which, which fascinates me, is money is often a kind of measure of somebody's success, um, kind of that net worth mm-hmm. statement equals self-worth. And I kind of wonder, is that type of thinking, is that a positive or a negative? So does that give people a drive to succeed? Or does it mean that they're never going to find what success looks like for them? Yeah, look, look, I I retain the right to be wrong about this, but I have zero doubt about it. I think it's it's been a disaster. I think using money as a proxy for value which is what we do right Mm -hmm. i exchange money for value Mm -hmm. when that translates into when we start applying that to humans which is exactly what we do when we start thinking about net like what i mean think of this question just think of this question what are you worth i mean it's it's like I, i it i i it crushes me to think that that's like the question we walk around, probably not asking each other, but asking each other silently. Like, mm-hmm. I wonder what they're worth. Yeah. 
and we've reduced that to a number. And the reason it's a disaster is because even the people who win that game, and I know a lot of them, for the most part are unhappy. Yeah. Right. They, they, so that's the reason it's a disaster. Like it may, it does. I think it does. Like maybe it is motivating to people and that competition is motivating. The problem is you can never, because it doesn't provide what you think it will provide. Mm -hmm. You can never get enough. And, and so and, and I want to be clear about this. If you've done the work, whatever the work is, and I'm using that term in like Byron Katie's sort of like, if you've done the work to understand your intrinsic value, whatever that's linked to, for some people that's linked to being a, a son or a daughter of God. For some people it's linked to being, you know, just a good human in a family unit, like whatever it's linked to that intrinsic value, if you've done that work, well, then this other piece can be a game. It can mm. be competition it can be fun it can be motivating for you but most people i know um that have won that game, we even have a word for that game mm. like internationally we we i think everywhere we call it a rat race yeah isn't that fascinating i want to win i want to win that race i want to win the rat race i always um remember a really wise client of mine saying to me um he came to his annual planning meeting and uh, I was asking about how his children were and they were in their thirties or something. And he said, oh yeah, they're fine. My son, well, he's in the velvet gutter. And what he meant by that, he was earning really good money, putting his children through private school with all the associated expenditure and fancy holidays and stuff. His point just being, that's him now committed to the next 15 years of living that particular lifestyle. It looks like it's very comfortable, but is it really what what, what's of value or what the family really wants. And, and the velvet gutter really always stuck with me. And the, yeah, like yeah, the rat race. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And so, yeah, do we, are we, are we running the wrong race? And, mm. and I think when we reduce, and I know we're not doing it, very few people, there are plenty of people who are, but most of us are not doing it overtly. Like we're not thinking like, oh, you're worth this or that but it's just implied and it, it's, it's become the water we swim in mm. and the air we breathe. And I think every once in a while to step away and it's really hard to step. I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine and I was saying, look, cause um, property values in the area that we live in have gone berserk. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how, you know, if we hadn't held on to our home while we spent five years overseas, we wouldn't be able to live here. And I, you know, I keep seeing people come in and, you know, buy huge, amazing houses that they tear down and build new ones. I'm like, yeah. where's all this money coming from? I was talking to my friend about this and he said, Carl, I make less than anyone I know. And he's like, so everybody I'm hanging out with going on bike rides. Oh, new bike going yeah. on trips. Oh, I can't. Afford. He's like, and I just have had to get comfortable. He said, and it's really, really hard mm -hmm. to not run that race Yeah, because I know I'll never win it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not downplaying how hard it is. I think it's like, I think it's the crux question of humanity mm -hmm. is like, have you any money? Mm -hmm. How much money do you have? How do you use it? And I, I think we've built a system that's really, for all of its benefits and, and amazingness, it's really problematic because it's built on scarcity. It's built on competition. Yeah. And most people, even the ones who win that, 
don't tend to be happy. And I'm not saying woe is them, like whatever, but they don't tend to be happy. And that was the result we were supposedly seeking. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Yep. Carl, um, you've run and sold a successful business. You're a successful speaker, a thought leader. You've got a, what I understand to be a global top secret financial planning community. But what, what's next for you? What, what's, what's, what gives you satisfaction and, and what's driving you forward now? Um, so I love doing, I'm, I'm trying to really design my life around exposure to doing scary things. <laughs> and what I mean by that is doing, and I just think of them as a, always as art projects um and so i just there's like a i mean we have a bunch of terms for it there's like and i and i built a whole system to sort of codify what goes on in my head but it's really i can feel right now the seeds i don't even know how to put we call it i call it the unspeakable thing like it's just an unspeak it's sometimes it's like maybe like a sliver under your index finger that you don't Mm -hmm. know is there you're just like Mm -hmm. ah, there's a thing sort of bothering me yeah working within me and so i know three to five years from now that i'll do a project around that unspeakable thing now and so we're just trying to design i'm just trying to design my life around collaborative more collaborative projects and i think some people call this the hollywood model where you gather a group of people together mm-hmm. do the project like a movie and then you mm-hmm. go back mm-hmm. and then the movie exists out there and there's another kind of group of people that it's their job to make the movie in the world but the people who created it are off yeah. And so I'm designing, we've built the system around six week collaboration, collaborative product projects where I just say to somebody that I really enjoy their work, Hey, let's just get in a room together and let's not be tied to what the specific sort of artifact of it will be yet, mm-hmm. but let's do something interesting. And so creating interesting things, doing things that may not work, mm-hmm. like as by definition, um, I'm just trying to design my whole life around regularly exposing myself to that feeling of fear, creative mm-hmm. fear with periods of rest in between, which is the yeah. part I used to forget. Yeah. And that has a price. So that's, that's really what I'm focused on is how can we create projects that help people and all of them are around the central theme of closing this gap between what we say is important to us and what we actually do, our use of, the way I say it is the use of capital. And by capital, I mean time, energy, and attention, sorry, time, money, and attention. Yeah. So how can we close the gap between what we say? If you imagine a Venn diagram for listeners just listening to it, imagine a Venn diagram with two circles that don't overlap. There's a gap between them. One circle is labeled, what's really important to me? And the other circle is labeled, my use of capital. Mm-hmm. And there's a gap. Well all of the projects I'm working on are like, how do we close that gap a little bit? Can't wait to see how that turns out, Carl. Interesting. Yeah. I can see it formulating as we're speaking. Yeah. Um, now I'm conscious of time and I've got a little favorite, silly little question that I like to ask everybody. Um, Carl, what have you spent less than, I'm going to say 30 pounds because I'm sitting here in sleepy Dorset, albeit you're, you may want to think in dollars. 
maybe about $35 then. What, what, what have you spent 30, 30 quid on that's brought you the most pleasure in the last 12 months? Pleasure or practicality? Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, oh, it's, 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 it, I've, I've got like a list of things that are <laughs> above that number lately. Like I got a new pair of skis to backcountry ski with, with my kids and there's just, it's not even close. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's actually, I'm going to break your rule. It's a little bit more. Maybe than, it's the wax that you use, Carl, yeah, on those skis. A little <laughs> more. I got, I got a, um, I got a really good, uh, a really good hat that I've been getting lots of use mm -hmm. from. I'm a big fan of having fewer things. I have a problem buying anything that doesn't have soul that doesn't feel like sometimes I point to like craftsmanship, like, mm -hmm. like the, like the pencil I use, like how ridiculous is it to have a mechanical pencil that's got, you know, like, and this would be an example. It's not, it's not $50. It probably was 60, but every time I touch it, there's a sense of craftsmanship. And I like all of that. Like I think of that yeah. all the way down to like water bottles, which is really mm -hmm. annoying because it's hard to find a craftsman water bottle. <laughs> I don't like buying stuff that, that, won't have patina and emotional resonance over time. So, yeah. so sorry, that wasn't an exact. No, 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 no. I, I go with anything that's allowed me to spend time outside with my kids. Yeah, good. And I, and I really do like that idea of, you know, applying that, that kind of thought process to what you purchase rather than just mindless purchases that you don't really care about and will get replaced at some point. Carl, finally, what I always like to do is to just leave our listeners with, what I'd call a pearl of wisdom, a pearl of money wisdom. What would be your money pearl of wisdom that you would like to leave us with today? Yeah, I think it is closely tied to what we've already talked about. Like I, I would just, um, yeah, I don't even know if this is advice. It's what I'm trying to do a better job of is just notice the feeling that comes with any interaction with money. So if it's spending, like I, 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 it might be the easiest place to start. Well, spending, investing, saving, the feeling that comes with it and start to pay attention. I think all the other personal finance hacks, right? Like cutting up your credit cards or whatever, like, all of those things are hacking at the branches of the problem. And it's a little bit like, to use a crude example, if you're an alcoholic, finding a better lock for the liquor cabinet, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it, when you want it bad enough, you're going to find a way to open the lock. So I think the better question is to like, what's at the root of this? And to me, the root of it is awareness. Mm -hmm. So just simply, rather than beating ourselves up over blowing a budget, what if we just stopped all of that and we just started noticing? And here's maybe the challenge, like for 30 days, I call it three seconds and 30 days. So for 30 days, every time, maybe we'll just stick with spending for a minute. Every time you spend money, make no goals, just every time you spend money, just take three seconds and just notice that you did it. There's no shame or blame. Mm -hmm. You're not saying that was bad or that mm -hmm. was stupid. You're literally the only job is to go, I just spent 
$8.97 at the sandwich shop. And then the phrase I like to use is, isn't that interesting? Yeah. End of story. And I think what will happen, in fact, I know what will happen because I've done this with hundreds of, if not thousands of people at this point, is the simple act of awareness will drive, that's not the goal. So don't make it the goal. You can't screw this up. Like you literally can't make the goal behavior change, mm -hmm. but the awareness will drive behavior change without you thinking about it. And I can mm -hmm. give you hundreds of examples. So that's the idea was be maybe just engage in a, you could think of it as a spending cleanse. Mm -hmm. I like thinking of it as 30 days and three seconds. Every time you spend money, take three seconds to notice that you did it with no shame or blame. This is not a trick. Mm -hmm. Just notice what you did by saying, isn't that interesting? That yeah. would be the, that, that's, that's something that I'm trying to do a better job of. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's really interesting and a very different take on budgeting. So when people often talk about writing things down, it's because it's a budget and it's about, but, but that just noticing it and how that accords with what's important or valuable to you. And I think particularly as we're moving out of lockdown and, you know, maybe some of us stepping back into what our life was like 13, 14 months ago. I think that's when we will really start to kind of, it's a, it's a perfect opportunity, I think, isn't it, to, to, to start this type of exercise. So, Yeah, can I, can I say one more thing about that? Mm. Like what, that's brilliant. And I would hope, like what an opportunity. Yeah. Because it would, I think it'd be, a, I think it would just be such a shame if we just went back to normal. Yeah. Without some thought. Like if we miss the out, because so many of us have had these conversations, like what really matters, mm -hmm. right? We've noticed that maybe I don't have to move as much as I thought in terms of like maybe spending time, maybe the simple card game with the kids was as much fun as that other thing. And, and there are certainly things that we're all looking forward to a little bit of travel or whatever, but it would just be, it would be such a shame to waste the opportunity of being like, to just go back to mindless consumption. Yeah. When we've got this chance to reset, I think that's really smart. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm hopeful that we'll we'll try and find that balance. Carl, thank you so much. I've loved talking to you. There's a million and one other things I could have asked you about, but um, um, it yeah, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and wisdom with our listeners today. It's it's been it's been a real joy. Thank you. My pleasure, and Ruth. I'll just say, look, on behalf of me and all the people who listen to it like thank you like we know that you and the, the team at paradigm norton like you don't need to be doing this um so this is a super generous gift you're offering to all of us so it's been a pleasure thanks carl bye for now so that's it for today i hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as i did i'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe rate and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn, at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you.
Thank you.